The last time we met together, I was a little bit ambitious trying to wrap up this whole chapter, you know, trying to conclude this chapter eight and chapter nine saga. But uh, I probably should have only stopped at verse 34 because I couldn't quite accomplish the task I set out to do. But still, God worked all of this together for his good as, uh, you know, we could kind of take our time through this transition because the bookends of chapter nine and the beginning of chapter chapter 10 really tie into each other very well, and it's done on purpose. Um, So we're able to see more clearly what God had intended in this section. Because over the last two chapters, Jesus has been demonstrating his absolute authority over every conceivable area of our lives. Everywhere he goes, he's healing every affliction that he comes into contact with, all the while proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom it says, and thus taking care of Israel's most desperate physical and spiritual needs, like the good shepherd that he is. Now, he's standing in direct contrast to the Pharisees of his time, who pictured themselves as Israel's leaders, but really weren't leading anyone at all, really. Now, I once heard it said that the man who fashions himself as a leader but doesn't actually have anyone following him, is merely taking a walk. I love that sentiment. And I think that all too well describes who the Pharisees thought they were versus who they actually were. As we recap kind of where we are in really just jumping right into verse 36, where it says, when he saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, earnestly pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. So not to skip past that point, the the Pharisees thought they were the shepherds of Israel. But what did Jesus later say about these false shepherds? By the time we get to chapter 23 of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus will indict them, saying they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders because they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. That's their characterization of who these men were. But but what do you think about when you picture in your mind a good shepherd, a shepherd who is responsible, a shepherd that takes real charge over their sheep. You you, you picture someone working themselves to exhaustion, taking care of their sheep. You know, sweaty, dirty, all kinds of messed up. Um, (laughs) Probably having bruises all over themselves because, (laughs) well, if there's no other way to put it, sheep bite. They're not just cute and cuddly creatures. They mess them with them the wrong way. They got a bite to them. So no shepherd would be in pristine condition if they were taking really taking care of these sheep. But when you try to think about what would a someone acting like these Pharisees actually look like if they were taking care of actual literal sheep? What would that look like? It's it's rather unfortunate and in a kind of a morbid way, very entertaining to think about. 
Here's what I mean. I imagine they would probably stand in the safest possible place, away from all the danger, away from them even getting their clothes dirty from the sheep, all the while calling the sheep terrible things for going places where they don't belong and doing things they're not supposed to do, not stopping them, just yelling at them for doing it, perhaps getting angry with sheep for wandering too far away from the rest of the fold and yelling at them all the more as a wolf grabs them from the outskirts and just yells at the rest of them for doing that. It's kind of a grim picture, letting that picture sink in of just not caring, standing in the safest place, standing away from getting themselves messy, watching the sheep get themselves messed up, judging them the whole way through. That's what the Pharisees were doing in Jesus' time. That was what the self-appointed leaders of Israel were doing. But Jesus, as we've seen in this passage, he sees these people and he has compassion on them. He sees their need and devises a plan to help them, saying that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Because as he sees all these people, Jesus has been laboring for chapters and chapters at this point, helping them. But it's only Jesus doing the work. The disciples and the apostles haven't joined in yet. Because when Jesus added humanity to his deity, when he became a man, when God became a man, he limited himself. He limited himself just as any any person is to one time and one place at a time. So, which is precisely why, you know, the, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. It's precisely why Jesus would later say that it would be better for him to ascend into heaven in the Gospel of John, because then he could send the Holy Spirit, which would be with you and be in you, which is a huge difference. Because now every Christian who believes the gospel, who believes what Jesus did on the cross for you, has the Holy Spirit inside them. The power of God inside them, equipping them for the task to partake in the types of ministry Jesus was partaking in. Going into all the world and making disciples of all the nations. (laughs) The Holy Spirit's at work even now in this room. That's the beauty of how this works because it's the power of the Spirit of God helping me to teach right now. And it's the Holy Spirit working in your hearts right now, making applications for the things that I'm saying. The Holy Spirit's helping you apply the things that you guys are hearing here in church to your own lives. And hopefully for some of the people joining us online as well. And moreover, it's, it's, it's the Spirit of God that moves us to have compassion on others, to maybe move us with compassion to serve in the food pantry, move us, uh, give us the gift of teaching and give us compassion and mercy to help others in the Sunday school and all of these other areas that we, were, that we serve God in. It's all through the power of the Spirit and it all comes from that same Spirit. And that, that's kind of the long-term fulfillment of what Jesus is talking about here. But the short-term fulfillment started with Jesus starting here with these 12 men, the 12 apostles. As we 
open up the next chapter in verse and chapter 10 where it says he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. <laughs> you know, this is a shocking thought when you think about it. But Jesus entrusted his entire ministry on earth to people. Interesting when you think about it in those terms, isn't it? But it makes sense. You know, Jesus' earthly ministry only lasted three years. For the last 2,000 years, it's been the church. That being Christ representatives here on this earth, doing his ministry, proclaiming his gospel. Now, granted, it's in the power of his spirit, but it's interesting to think that God gave charge of that ministry to people. What an interesting thought. But we're encouraged because the Bible is full of examples of what God could do with just a couple of people. Think about it. Through... uh, Through Moses, uh, God helped lead the whole nation of Israel out of Egypt. Not because Moses was so powerful or so great, but because God was so great. The same thing with uh, how Jonathan and his armor bearer took down a whole Philistine garrison in 1 Samuel 14. Not because Jonathan was such a skilled warrior, but because God was so good and so powerful and with him. Samson slayed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Not because Samson was so great. Guy wasn't even obedient. But because God was so great. It's what Gideon did, fighting the entire Midianite army with only 300 men. He didn't have victory because those 300 men were so skilled. He had victory because God is so good. And so powerful, so mighty, and with him. In all of these stories, it's the same thread. It's not the power of man. It's the power of God that brings about these victories. None of those men would have been so foolish as to think that, oh, it was because they are so good that these things happen. (laughs) No, no No two men are so arrogant to think it's their ability that led them to beat an entire Philistine garrison. That, that, that would be absurd. But because they trusted that God was so great. So guys, I can say with confidence, with that thought, that God is going to do the great things he has planned here in South Amboy. Again, not because we're so great. No offense to you guys. But because God is so great. I just want to be a participant in what he is doing here. That's all I want. And I want to see him work his wonders in this city to accomplish what he desires. Because I've had conversations with a lot of you people. I don't think God is done with this city yet. I think he still wants to do something great here in South Amboy. And I just want to see him work about his work, his ways. I want to get out of the way and just let watch him work because he does it much better than I can. After all, God has done a lot more with a lot less, hasn't he? Now, here's the angle that frustrates some people when we think about it, though. To build his church, Jesus didn't set up a seminary. 
He didn't set up a Bible college. God forbid he didn't set up a denomination. He got 12 men together and poured his life into these men. Teaching them, ministering to them, showing them how to do ministry by doing it alongside them for three whole years. It's a method called discipleship. And it's unfortunate that we don't see this method anymore as frequently because that's what Jesus did. And it's what he told his disciples to do. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. That includes America. That includes South Amboy. Go and make disciples. And look, there's... So many people who just want to, uh, oh, well, I don't have time to do actual discipleship. Here, just read this book. Listen to this radio station. Listen to this podcast. Uh, just listen to the pastor. You know, that, that, that's good enough. But let me tell you, I have been infinitely more shaped by the men who have discipled me than by all the authors that I have read. It makes a huge difference. And, and so it is a, we are not off the hook from this model. And this is huge because Jesus had four different types of relationships with people. And we see a hint of that in this passage. Four different types of relationships. Um, starting at the most intimate, Jesus didn't just have his 12, he had his three. Beyond the 12, there were Peter, James, and John. You read the Gospels, you see these men always together. In the most intimate and most special of moments, you always see those men with Jesus. Now, those were the ones he most trusted, the ones he had the most intimate teaching moments with them, the most he poured into. I mean, it's no wonder why Peter and John really became such pillars of the early church afterwards. Because they were always with Jesus. And I'm sure the same would have been true of James had he not been martyred so early in church history. But moving forward, secondly, Jesus had his three, and then he had his 12, these 12 apostles. Jesus frequently see uh, explaining his parables and teachings more deeply to, really pouring into these men, giving them more ministry opportunities. And then Jesus had the 70. And we'll hear more about them, but these are other committed followers of Jesus, ready to do ministry. So Jesus had his three, his 12, his 70, and then he has the masses. The masses. Great crowds gathered together for all kinds of reasons. Some out of genuine faith and interest to learn more about Jesus. Others, like the Pharisees, just gathering to scoff at him from a closer angle. So the masses weren't committed. They were just a group of people. And Jesus spoke very differently to the masses than he did to his 12 apostles, for instance. You know, speaking in parables rather than speaking plainly because you never just air all of your most intimate thoughts to the masses. (laughs) You want to destroy yourself, please do that. Gosh, in the social media age... Nope, not going there. Never mind. You guys see where I'm going with that. But today's culture, even today's churches, we're all about ministering to the masses. 
That's the, that's the bullseye for so many churches to minister to the masses. We want bigger crowds, more filled pews, bigger churches, bigger buildings, bigger events, bigger, bigger, bigger. Everything has to be bigger and to the masses, to the most number of people that can be heard. And, you know, when, when I read the Gospels, though, I don't see Jesus purposely ministering to the masses. He never refuses to minister to them. He never shied away from an opportunity to speak to them, but he makes the time for his disciples, never at the expense of them, to appeal to the masses. And I think it's because Jesus, in his deity, was able to see through the the hollowness of events that are catered to the masses that we so often forget. That it's not about how wide you can spread yourself thin with just a message, but how deep you can go with Jesus. How deep the message can penetrate you is far more important than how wide the message can be spread. Because it's the people who are touched most deeply by God that will go and do more things for him and truly be impacted by the message. So just to make this practical, you know, because this, this is really where my heart is. You know, should the Lord tarry and we're all still here five years from now, let's say? My highest priority to me, my, the greatest joy of my heart would be for each of us to be able to look back five years' time, back to this time and say, you know what, wow, I really know the Lord better now than I did five years ago. No, I'm making more choices that honor God than I did five years ago. I'm avoiding more of the things that displease him than I made five years ago. And Jesus means more to me now, more than ever before in my life. That's the impact that the gospel's intended to have on each of us. So, with that being said... uh, I do need to keep us moving forward. Um, Verse 2 says, The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. You know, I'm just realizing I kind of skipped over the second half of verse 1 because it, he, that uh, Jesus gave authority to these men over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And he gave them that authority because, again, the goal was to continue Jesus' ministry. To, um, it, it's a foretaste of what we would later see in the book of Acts where they would go on and perform these miracles that you see in the book of Acts to confirm that this thing that the apostles are doing, this church that's beginning to bud, that's a work of God as well. That is a continuation of what Jesus had started. And indeed was God's church. Furthermore, we read in uh, Luke's account in uh, chapter 6 of uh, the Gospel according to Luke, Jesus said that he was actually up on a mountaintop praying all night before he called these men to himself. And, you know, there's many things that could be said there. I'm almost out of time, but 
It's a reminder that if Jesus prayed over this major ministry a moment, how much more so should we be praying for the ministry opportunities God gives us? I mean, that was our big exhortation the last time we, I, I was here with you guys, to, to pray, to pray that God would raise up these laborers for the harvest, to pray that God would raise up the people to do the work of the ministry around us. And, you know, the same ought to be involved of, in the ministry that we're already involved in for so many of us, just kind of looking around. You know, for those of you guys who serve as part of the greeters ministry, are you guys praying that you guys have an opportunity to really meet somebody new this week or to minister to somebody that maybe you don't know as well this week? Have that opportunity to have that encouraging conversation. We ought to commit that to prayer. Those of you who are deacons here, you guys ought to be praying to have those opportunities to be the hands and feet of Christ to somebody who has a a practical ministry need. And then you have uh, uh, the elders of this church. (laughs) Y'all are called to pray about everything here. (laughs) You guys are on the hook for everything. You You and the rest of you should be praying for your elders. Goodness. There's much to be said about that. And there are, there, there are many lists of these apostles given in the scriptures. Uh, Peter's always listed first, and for the obvious leadership role he's taken on with the apostles. Judas is always listed last, for obvious reasons. You know, he, he had a good start, but he would go on to betray Christ. And then you have all kinds of interesting people in the middle. You have... Matthew, the tax collector, who, by the way, names his rather shameful profession in his own gospel. He's the only one to do that. Now, that shows the honesty that Matthew was writing with about himself. He didn't hide from his past. But it's funny when you see Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot, listed in the same thing. Because those guys outside of Jesus, those men would have been at each other's throats. The the zealots wanted to kill the tax collectors. They wanted to get these guys out of here. Throw off the Roman oppressors. But yet in Christ they have, they, they share life together. They have unity with one another. And man, if that's not God's design for his church today too, I don't know what is. Man, I see the diversity as I'm looking around this room of all different personalities and ethnicities and character traits. And I'm just... Amazed that God has brought us together for such a time as this. And the unity that we have here is a beautiful and wonderful thing. I rejoice over that every time I look out through that, through that lens as I'm looking at this church. Very proud of what God is doing here in that regard. But all that said, these men, <laughs> though there was a unity in Christ, these men were far from perfect. I'm not going to do a in-depth character study on each of them. Uh, Some have, and you certainly could. But these men were, they had their pitfalls. For instance, they were constantly bickering over who was the greatest. (laughs) The irony lost on them that the answer is Jesus. (laughs) Nobody comes in even a close second to that question. They would would constantly miss the point of Jesus' teaching. Always often asking for more clarity, even to some of his more clear teachings. 
which shows, you know, these aren't abnormally bright guys. These aren't the cream of the crop intellectually. Uh, furthermore, you know, they would miss the point in terms of applying Jesus' teaching. Jesus said to turn the other cheek. And what does Peter go and do? He lops off somebody's ear off with a sword. Man, he missed the point that time, didn't he? So not only do they don't get it intellectually, they don't get it practically, they seem to miss it every step of the way. Jesus says, stay up and pray, and they fall asleep. And I find great comfort in that. Because, man, I'm not the smartest guy either. I don't have the most gifted and wonderful prayer life that can move mountains. I don't... My, my, I, I don't always apply what I preach perfectly either. I'm just as broken and flawed as the next person. So we can all be encouraged that when we see the apostles the same way, we can all be encouraged that we can all be used by God for whatever he has called us to do. Because it's not about me being so perfect, but to return to that theme that we began with. But because God is so good and so great. Because it's not about our power or strength that we live by, but Christ's. So just to kind of tie a bow around where we are right now. What is God calling you to do in this next season? What's God putting on your heart? No matter how big or small the task is, don't immediately think about your own natural giftedness. Because it's about what Christ, because it's been said, I'm going to butcher the quote because I didn't write it down first. But Christ doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies those whom he calls. He doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies those whom he calls. If he calls you to do something, he's going to equip you. He's going to give you what you need. He's going to make you the type of person he needs you to be. Because my goodness, when I heard the call to pastoral ministry, I was like, mm, nah, <laughs> you got the wrong guy. I, I'm missing all of the character traits for that. God knew I would need 10, 15 years to get ready. <laughs> But here we are. God qualifies those whom he calls. And again, look to the apostles for encouragement. The, the task and calling of being an apostle of Jesus Christ was infinitely higher than what a Galilean fisherman could imagine. But God qualified them. And brought them to the task. They trusted God to make them who God had called them to be. And they went on to turn the world upside down for the next 2,000 years. So let us be encouraged by that truth today. When we consider what God has called us to do here at this church. In this community. In our families and in our areas of influence today. Thanks be to God. Amen.